Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get started. Sutra Study Sunday. <laughs> uh, so, uh, welcome back. If you haven't been here for a while, you're welcome. Uh, tonight's a fun night. Uh, we're going to talk about a brand new sutra called the Samagama Sutra. Uh, I have Noam to thank for this, for uh, suggesting this sutra. I've never taught this sutra. In fact, I had never read it until Noam suggested it. So I got right on it, and it's an amazing sutra. Um, I'm going to do a very quick little introduction to some ideas, because I think it why not? It'd be helpful. Um, and there's just a couple of ideas or a couple of things you need to know about the sutra. And then I'm pretty much just going to read it. It's very straightforward. There's, it's, it's not a lot more to it. Um, so really quickly, though, the ideas that are on the board, uh, at the very top there, those are the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha classic description of what Buddhism is kind of all about. Uh, Buddha, which means awakened one. Uh, Dharma, which can mean truth. And Sangha, which does indeed mean community or assembly. But the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, can also be thought of as uh, teacher teaching students. Um, you know, a guru, uh, the truth of that guru, the teachings of that guru, and the followers of that guru. Um, so in, in a way, there's a very Buddhist-specific way to think of these three jewels. But there's also a way of thinking of just sort of religion in terms of, you know, uh, Jesus, the gospel, and the church. That's sort of a, a dynamic involved uh, in practice or something like that. Um, underneath these three jewels, what I've written are the, the textual foundations for understanding the Buddha are the sutras, the discourses or teachings of the Buddha. Understanding the Dharma, there's a body of texts called the Abhidharma, which are a, a group of systems and lists that explain the content of the sutras. And there are seven divisions traditionally of the Abhidharma. There is also a single book called the Visuddhi Magha, which was written by a monk. I believe it was Vasubandhu, don't quote me on that, but Visuddhi Magha means the path of purification. And this is a single little volume that kind of takes all seven of these and puts it into one little volume. So if you don't have the patience of the time for the whole Abhidharma, you can read a, a just a presentation of it. And again, this is explanations and systematic ways of thinking about the ideas presented in the sutras. And then the Sangha, or the tradition of the, the Buddhist monks and nuns, followed what's called the Vinaya, the rules and regulations. And there's just one big old Vinaya, but there is also a small thing called the pratimoksha, or the vows, 
And that is the Vinaya consists of the, the, the rules for being a monk or a nun, of which there are roughly about 220, 227, all the way up to about 300, depending on what Buddhist community you're talking about. But the Vinaya includes not just the rules, but it includes the whole story about why that rule was made. So there's actually a story about how monk so-and-so was off doing something he shouldn't have done, and the other monk thought, is that, should we really be doing that? And they went to the Buddha, and they said, hey, monk so-and-so was doing such-and-such, should we be doing that? And the Buddha said, no, don't do that. And then it became a rule that monks are not to do X, Y, and Z. The value of the Vinaya, of course, is that it's not just the rules blindly follow them. The Vinaya is that here is the logic and the reasoning that led to there being this rule. It's very helpful. Uh, so again, the pratimoksha is just the rules. So if you're ever just interested in, well, what are the rules? I don't want to read the whole giant vinaya. Then you could find a nice little book like this, Buddhist Monastic Discipline, which actually has two different pratimokshas of two different Buddhist communities side by side. So you can kind of see where they're exactly the same. And then you can see where this community was a little different than this community. Oh, right. So, uh, by the way, Buddhists, uh, monastics, monks and nuns, traditionally on the new and full moons, so every two weeks, noon, on the new and full moon, there is a ritual recitation of the pratimoksha, a ritual recitation of all the rules for the community. And then it's at that moment, on the new and full moon, uh, the night of the new and full moon, that that is the opportunity to confess if you've broken any of those rules. So that's usually how it works. I've written up here too, just traditionally, the, the, in orange here are the Nikayas or Agamas. These are the collections of sutras in the Pali language, this being one of those Nikayas. The Abhidharma, the seven volumes of the Abhidharma are traditionally Theravadan, and the, the Vinaya is traditionally Theravadan along with the Pratimoksha. But of course, there's tons of other sutras in the Mahayana tradition, Pranyaparamita sutras, Pure Land sutras, esoteric sutras, all kinds. Who do they, who do they, uh, they tell their sins to, they tell their transgressions to who? To the community. To the community? It's a confession. It's like a group, a group confession. Oh. Yep. It's not to anyone. Great question, by the way. It's not to anyone. It's to the group. So there's not like a judge in that sense. Um, as time went on, not only would monks take all 220 or 227 or 300 vows within the Vinaya, they eventually, in the Mahayana tradition, tacked on 57 extra bodhisattva vows. And it's actually the bodhisattva vows that you have rules against uh, eating meat, for example. Uh, in the Vinaya, you could eat meat. It's in the bodhisattva vows that you have to be vegetarian. So it's actually a Mahayana thing to be vegetarian, not a Theravada thing. Uh, eventually, monasteries in China, Mongolia, Korea, they developed their own pure standards called Qingwe in Chinese. And so those monks would follow all the Vinaya plus their bodhisattva vows plus their local monastery rules that are specific to that mountain specific to the trees that grow on that mountain. So very localized rules. 
And then eventually you get things like the Vajra precepts or an Abhisheka, tantric rituals of initiation, even more vows, even more rules and all of that. So in the tantric, like Tibetan tradition, monks follow the Vinaya, they take the Bodhisattva vows, they follow their local monastery vows, and they follow these extra tantric vows. The rules for being a Buddhist monk or a nun are usually divided into sections. There's four grave offenses, four things that get you kicked out. No, there's no conversation, you're gone. 13 things that almost get you kicked out, but you could stay if we talk about it. <clears throat> there's two unique offenses in a category all to themselves. <clears throat> and then some like less serious offenses, 30 of them, less serious, 92, these four offenses unto themselves, 67, and it starts to get really minuscule. And there's a famous story that at the deathbed of the Buddha, when the Buddha was dying, he said to Ananda, like, oh, Ananda, by the way, like, you can forget about the minor rules. And Ananda, <laughs> and, and, and Ananda was like, great. Great. And then the Buddha died, and, he, and Ananda said to everybody, he said, yeah, but he said we can forget about the minor rules. And everybody said, great, which ones are those? And Ananda was like, oh, I forgot to ask. <laughs> so it's a big question about does the minor, do, when the Buddha said that the minor rules, you could like ignore them, did he mean these, those, those? And it gets debatable. Okay, so. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's like he just... Screwed everybody, like, as a joke. Oh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways to think about that. But. <laughs> so, Upaya or Upeksha or whatever, it's like a skillful... Yeah, kind of. Kind well, of it's a very... And it actually becomes a very... Uh, it becomes a problem in Buddhism, where you have one group of people saying, no, that's a minor rule, and he said we could break those, and another group is like, that's not a minor rule, and so you actually get schisms about it. Now, did the Buddha really say that? I don't know. But people say he did. This seems like an Ananda thing. Well, yeah, yeah. Ananda's a nutshell. <laughs> All the time, that guy's just a, yeah. just a lovable fool. Can you talk a little bit about what these rules and regulations are for? Are they ethical rules? So like, yeah, that, that's a great question. So they are primarily rules focused on, well, it's tricky. So for example, the, the, the top four things that you can't do are... Um, Steal, kill, lie, or the intentional emission of semen for monks. The intentional emission of semen, which means if you have a wet, what's called a nocturnal emission, a wet dream as it's called, that's not breaking the fourth rule. But if you were to masturbate or certainly have sex, and at the new moon confession, you were like, by the way, last night, <laughs> I rubbed one out last night. <laughs> You're gone. You're gone. So those are the four. The 13 are pretty major, but I, I have to say this, that the, of all these 200 rules, a lot of them, I would say, are comportment, how you carry yourself, uh, the proper way to beg. For example, when you have your begging bowl, you don't make eye contact. You stare at the ground. That's a rule. Um, you are never to stand with your arms akimbo. That's a rule. So 
so some of them are very kind of minor like that, and then some of them are major like stealing, killing, and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Yep, and the the purpose of tonight's sutra is about cohesion of the sangha. So it's kind of why I'm going through all this, so you kind of know w- what they're talking about in, in the bigger picture. Yeah, uh, did you not mention murder as one of the four? Killing. Yeah, killing, 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 okay. yeah. killing okay. stealing, lying, sexual, or when sex. A, when a, uh, a community hears of someone doing something, is there a What, what is the community's responsibility when somebody is making a public statement violating? So there are. Um, so if the, the top four get you kicked out, and then as they go further down, the primary conclusion or result. Of, so let's say we have our new moon confession. And somebody confesses to one of the ones that doesn't get you kicked out. The main thing that happens to them is that they are um, removed from the community for a certain amount of time. They have a like a, a little private shack, basically, where they meditate and live alone for a period of. And depending on whether it's if it's really serious, you're gone for a while. And if it's not so serious, maybe it's just a night. And this is all outlined in the in the Vinaya, not so much in the Prenti Moksha, but this is outlined so it's in the prescribed, it's not the community making decisions. Yep, it's prescribed. Yeah. Absolutely. So really quickly before I read the sutra, because again there's really not a lot to the sutra that's mysterious, like words you need to know. It's all very straightforward. I'd say actually there's only two major ideas that are alluded to that you may not get. They're going to talk about a bhikkhu, and the, which means a monk. A monk, bhikkhu, they're going to talk about them. Um, get, what, I forget what the language is right now, but either, uh, let's see. They're going to talk about a monk bordering on defeat. Defeat is, I, there's usual, like, Technical language, but defeat is usually either doing one of the four or one of the 13. And it means like you failed, you, you get defeated, you, you lost. Um, but what they're talking about is this, is, this sutra is about disputes in the Sangha. People accusing other people of doing things, disputes. And so the idea here is, is that they're going to be accusing monks of getting close to defeat, of doing something really bad. And what do we do when that happens? That's what the sutra is about. So it's an interesting thing. It's also interesting that it is actually a sutra. It's not the Vinaya. This is one of the very few sutras that talks about this stuff. In fact, I think there's only two that talk really explicitly about this stuff. Otherwise, you need to go to the Vinaya to learn how to run a community and how to keep social cohesion going. Right. Can you explain those two examples you gave? Why? What's so bad about putting your hands on your hips? And what's so bad about making eye contact when someone generously gives you a? Both of them are considered. Both of them are. Both of them are considered rude. But they're not. To you. (laughs) Well, rude is only social convention. Right. 
so <laughs> let's just leave it down. Yeah? So in the context of this sutra, everyone in the Sangha is a monk. And a, and a guy, or maybe not? So, let, okay, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm, and I'll emphasize this probably after I read the sutra, but I do want to emphasize it now that what you're about to read is for the monks and, by extension, the nuns. Okay. So monastics. This is specifically about monastics. Now, I want to do this sutra. I'm excited to do this sutra because I think the wisdom in here is applicable to any community trying to do anything. I think it's actually that universally applicable. But it's important to keep in mind, though, that this is talking about the monks and, and what they're involved in in that, in that regard. Um, the only other thing that you need to know that you may not know is that what, what initiates this sutra is the, the passing away, or the dying of a religious teacher that this sutra calls the Nigantha Nataputta. There was a group called the Niganthas, and the leader of that was called Nataputta. Most people, although there's some controversy about this, but most people understand that the Nigantha Nataputta was Mahavira, the founder of the Jain tradition. So if you've heard of Jainism or Jainism as it's pronounced, the founder of that was a guy named Mahavira, the great Vira, Mahavira, um, who was contemporaneous with the Buddha, lived at the same time as the Buddha, died, went, they debated, and, di and, and Mahavira died during the lifetime of the Buddha. This sutra is a response to the passing away of the Nigantha Nataputta, or Mahavira. That's kind of the only other thing you need to know. Okay, so here we go. The Samagama Sutra, which is Sutra number 104 of 152 in the Majjhima Nikaya here, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. It's called the Samagama Sutra because it takes place at Samagama. That's where it was. So, uh, thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living in the Sakyan country of Samagama. Now, on that occasion, the Nigantha Nataputta, Mahavira, had just died at Pava. On his death, the Niganthas were divided, split into two, and they had taken to quarreling and brawling and were deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. You do not understand the Dharma or the discipline. I understand the Dharma and the discipline. How could you understand the Dharma and the discipline? Your way's wrong. My way's right. I'm consistent. You're inconsistent. What should have been said first, you said last. What should have been said last, you said first. <laughs> what, you, what you had so carefully thought up has been turned inside out. Your assertion has been shown up. You're refuted. Go and learn better. Or distangle yourself if you can. It seemed as if there was nothing but slaughter among the Nigantha Nataputta's pupils. And his white-clothed lay disciples were disgusted, dismayed, and disappointed with the Nigantha Nataputta's pupils. All right. So then... All that going on, the novice Chunda, who is actually Shariputra's younger brother. So Shariputra, who's chief disciple of the Buddha, Shariputra's younger brother, Chunda, 
who had spent the rain season meditation retreat at Pava with the Nigatha Nataputta. He went to the Venerable Ananda, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side and told him what was taking place. The Venerable Ananda then said to the novice Chunda, Friend Chunda, this is news that should be told to the Blessed One, the Buddha. Come, let us approach the Blessed One and tell him this. Yes, Venerable Sir, the, no the novice Chunda replied. Then the Venerable Ananda and the novice Chunda went together to the Blessed One. After paying homage to him, they sat down at one side, and the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, This novice Chunda, Venerable Sir, says thus, Venerable Sir, the Nigatha Nataputta has just died. On his death, the Nigathas are divided, split into two, and is now with its shrine. And now the Nigathas are with their shrine broken, left without a refuge. I, Ananda, thought, Venerable Sir, let no dispute arise in the Sangha when the Blessed One has gone, for such a dispute would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans alike. What do you think, Ananda? These things that I have taught you after directly knowing them, that is, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right, right kinds of striving, the four bases of spiritual power, five faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, the noble eightfold path. Do you see, Ananda, even two bhikkhus who make differing assertions about these things? No, Venerable Sir, I do not see even two bhikkhus who make differing assertions about these things. But, Venerable Sir, there are people who live deferential towards the Blessed One, who might, when he is gone, create a dispute in the Sangha about right livelihood and the Pratimoksha. Such a dispute would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans alike. A dispute about livelihood or about the pratimoksha would be trifling, Ananda. But should a dispute arise in the Sangha about the path of the correct way, such a dispute would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans alike. There are, Ananda, these six roots of dispute. What six? Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu is angry and resentful. Such a bhikkhu dwells disrespectful and undeferential towards the teacher, towards the dharma, and towards the sangha, and he does not fulfill the training. A bhikkhu who dwells disrespectful and undeferential towards the teacher, towards the dharma, and towards the sangha, and who does not fulfill the training, creates a dispute in the sangha, which would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans alike. Now, if you see any such root of dispute, either in yourselves or externally, you should strive to abandon that same evil root of dispute. And if you do not see that any such root of dispute, either in yourselves or externally, then you should practice in such a way that that same evil root of dispute does not erupt in the future. Thus, there is the abandoning of that evil root of dispute. Thus, there is the non-eruption of that evil root of dispute in the future. Again, a bhikkhu is contemptuous and insolent, or envious and avarice, or fraudulent and deceitful, or has evil wishes and false views, or adheres to his own views, holds on to them tenaciously, 
and relinquishes them with, little, with great difficulty. Such a bhikkhu dwells disrespectful and undeferential towards the teacher, towards the dharma, and towards the sangha, and he does not fulfill the training. A bhikkhu do, who dwells disrespectful and undeferential towards the teacher, towards the dharma, towards the sangha, and who does not fulfill the training creates a dispute in the sangha which would be for the harm and unhappiness of many, for the loss, harm, and suffering of gods and humans alike. Now, if you see any such root of dispute, either in yourselves or externally, you should strive to abandon that same evil root of dispute. And if you do not see any such root of dispute, either in yourselves or externally, you should practice in such a way that that same evil root of dispute does not erupt in the future. Thus, there is the abandoning of that evil root of dispute. Thus, there is the non-eruption of that evil root of dispute in the future. These are the six roots of dispute. So Ananda, there are also these four kinds of litigation. What for? Litigation because of a dispute. Litigation because of an accusation. Litigation because of an offense. And litigation concerning proceedings. These are the four kinds of litigation. I'll pause just to explain. So these are the four, these are the six things that cause a dispute to arise. So we should meditate on these and check ourselves and others to make sure these don't come about. This, this would solve the problem. Well, let's say something comes up. Let's say there's a, a dispute that needs to be litigated, that needs to be worked out. The Buddha has said that there's four types of disputes a dispute, which means there's two people saying, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. An accusation, which is just one person saying, you did wrong. The other person's like, oh, I'm not. And so there's just an accusation. An offense is a self-confessed offense. This is when that monk says, guys, I messed up. And it's just self-confessed. And then a procedural litigation is actually a litigation about the procedure of doing all of this, about the Vinaya itself, right? So is the Buddha saying that there can't be a good faith dispute? That like there's always going to be someone who's feeling something that they could have dealt with before you get to a dispute? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the way I understand this sutra, though, is that this is wisdom for keeping a community or group together. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of saying, like, you want to keep it together? Watch these six things. <laughs> and you won't have any problems. Like, if, they, if you keep these at bay. Now, if any of these creep up, he's saying you might have problems. And those problems might look like one of these four disputes, one of these four litigations. All right? Excuse me, Michael. Yeah, please. You said types of disputes and litigations, because in English they're different to me anyway. Types of, types of disputes is different than the litigatory process. Sorry, there are four litigation processes concerning disputes, okay. <laughs> accusations, self-confessed offenses, and procedural problems. Yep. So those are the four litigations. Ananda. There are these seven kinds of settlement of litigation. Right? For the settlement and pacification of litigations whenever they arise. So, 
any one of these arising from this, if any of these arise, there's seven ways it could work itself out. Right? For the settlement and pacification of litigations, whenever they arise, there is. The removal of litigation by confrontation may be provided. So one way is a face-to-face -face confrontation working it out. All right? The opinion of the majority may be provided for the settlement and pacification of litigation. There is the removal of litigation on account of good memory, which, and that may be provided. There is the removal of litigation on account of, a, of past insanity. That may be provided for. There is the, the removal of a litigation on account of acknowledgement of the offense. There is the removal of litigation upon the pronouncement of bad character against someone. And the seventh is the so-called covering over with grass. Okay, and how, okay, so now he explains these seven. And how, because is there a removal of a litigation by confrontation? Here, because are disputing. This is the Dharma, or that's not the Dharma, or this is the discipline, or that's not the discipline. Those bhikkhus should all meet together in concord. Then, having met together, a guideline of the Dharma should be drawn out. Once the guideline of the Dharma has been drawn out, that litigation should be settled in a way that accords with it, such as the removal of litigation by confrontation. And there is a footnote here, by the way, that says it's not confrontation. It just means a face-to-face -face meeting. Hmm? And how, bhikkhus, is there a settlement of litigation on the opinion of a majority? So if those bhikkhus cannot settle the litigation in that dwelling place, they should go to a dwelling place where there is a greater number of bhikkhus. There they should all meet together in concord. Then, having met together, a guideline of the Dharma should be drawn out. Once the guideline of the Dharma has been drawn out, that litigation should be settled in a way that accords with it, such as the opinion of a majority. And so there comes to be the settlement of some litigations here by the opinion of a majority. Everybody following this? Two guys get in dispute, two bhikkhus, they try to work it out in accordance with the Dharma. If they do, great. If they don't, we take it to a larger group for the opinion of the majority. Please. In both cases, it seems like, whether it's a face-to-face -face meeting or majority opinion, the, the people involved or the majority of the group decides on some new guidelines and then applies those Not guidelines. new guidelines. Actually, a clarifies, clarifies, clarifies Yeah, it would be like if you had an organization with a mission statement. Uh, we would get together and write out the mission statement right. and then come to an agreement that accords to the mission statement. Right. And, if, right. and if we can't do that, we'll go to a bigger group, right. write out the mission statement, right. and then come to a, an agreement that accords to it. Yeah? So they don't, they, they settle the issue itself, but they settle it, it by looking at the bigger picture. Yes. Where it fits in and general, it, as a general principle. Yes, and much like a mission statement in a already agreed upon what we're all about, right? 
And how is there removal of a litigation on account of memory? Here, one bhikkhu reproves another bhikkhu for such and such a grave offense on involving defeat or bordering on defeat. Quote, does the venerable one remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat? And if that bhikkhu says, I do not, friends, remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. In his case, removal of litigation on account of memory should be pronounced, such as the removal of litigation on account of memory. And so there comes to be the settlement of some litigations here by removal of litigation on account of memory. There's a bunch of footnotes on this one that I will share with you. This is called the good memory, and it seems to be operating in two ways. One is that it seems to be a question of if someone, someone is accused, and in a way they didn't do it, and they're like, I didn't do it. But the sec So their good memory is that they have a clean memory. That's what one half of the good memory means, that their memory is good, meaning they didn't do it. The other half of the good memory is that it's also a monk that has a very good reputation that everybody, nobody would even think that this monk would do that. So the community doesn't think the monk would do it and the monk is saying I didn't do it. That's what this one is about. Okay. And how is their removal of litigation on account of past insanity? Here, one bhikkhu reproves another bhikkhu for such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. And they are asked, does the venerable one remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat? And the bhikkhu says, I do not, friends, remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. Despite the denial, the former presses the latter further. Surely the venerable one must know, know quite well if he remembers having committed such and such a grave offense when involving defeat or bordering on defeat. And the monk says again, I had gone mad, friend. I was out of my mind. And when I was mad, I said and did many things improper for a recluse. I, I do not remember. I was mad when I did it. In his case, removal of the litigation on account of past insanity should be pronounced such as the removal of litigation on account of past insanity, and so there comes to be the settlement of some litigations, here by removal of litigation on account of past insanity. And how is there effecting of acknowledgement of a past event or a past offense? Here a bhikkhu, whether reproved or unreproved, remembers an offense. So whether he's been accused of it or not, a bhikkhu remembers that an offense, reveals it, and discloses it. He should go to a senior bhikkhu, and after arranging his robe on one shoulder, he should pay homage at the bhikkhu's feet. Then, sitting on his heels, he should raise his hands, palms together, and say, Venerable sir, I have committed such and such an offense, I confess it. The others say, Do you see? And he says, Yes, I see. The senior says, Will you practice restraint in the future? And the monk says, I will practice restraint in the future. Such is the effecting of acknowledgement of an offense, and so there comes to be the settlement of some litigations here by the effecting of acknowledgement of an offense. And how is there the pronouncement of bad character against someone? Here, one bhikkhu reproves another for such, such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. 
Does the Venerable One remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat? And he says, I do not, friends, remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. Despite the denial, the former presses the latter further, saying, Surely the Venerable One must know quite well if he remembers having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. He says, I do not, friends, remember having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. But friends, I remember having committed such and such a minor offense. (laughs) Despite the denial, the former presses the latter further. Surely the venerable one must know quite well if he remembers having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. And that monk says, friends, when not asked, I acknowledged having committed this minor offense. So when asked, why shouldn't I acknowledge having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat? The others say, friend, if you had not been asked, you would not have acknowledged committing this minor offense. So why, when asked, would you acknowledge having committed such such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat? Surely the vulnerable one must quite well know quite well if he remembers having committed such and such a grave offense, one involving defeat or bordering on defeat. He says, I remember, friends, having committed such such a great offense, one involving defeat or bordering on a feat. I was joking. I was raving. I was raving when I said I did not remember having committed such and such a great offense, one involving defeat or bordering on a feat. Such is the pronouncement of bad character against someone. And so there comes to be the settlement of some litigations here by the pronouncement of bad character against someone. So that's kind of the opposite of the good memory. <laughs> In terms of the person's all over the place and basically gets caught lying, kind of a thing, right? And how bhikkhus is there covering over with grass? Here bhikkhus, having taken to quarreling and brawling and are deep in disputes, they may have said and done many things improper for a recluse. Those bhikkhus should all meet together in concord, when they have met together, a wise bhikkhu among the bhikkhus who, set, who side together on the one part should rise from his seat. And after arranging his robe on one shoulder, he should raise his hands, palms together, and call for an enactment of the sangha thus. Let the venerable sangha hear me. When we took to quarreling and brawling and were deep in disputes, we said and did many things improper, improper for recluses. If it is approved by the Sangha, then for the good of these venerable ones and for my own good, in the midst of the Sangha, I shall confess by the method of covering over with grass any offenses of these venerable ones and any offenses of my own, except for those which call for serious censure and those connected with the laity. Covering over with grass, otherwise known as sweeping under the rug. Right? So what they're saying is, is that in the middle of all this dispute, if we say a bunch of petty stuff and all of that, we can kind of sweep that under the rug. As long as we all agree on it and all of that. It's just a minor thing. I mean, sweeping under the rug for me has a, a way of, it's, it's a little bit like a lesser thing as opposed to another term, which is like letting sleeping dogs lie. Mm. You know, the idea of like, you know, it's, it's an accepting, I love the covering of grass, that's beautiful. Wait till I tell it's, you what it means. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's a reference to uh, a pile of shit that you can cover with grass so it doesn't stink as bad. So we committed all these offenses and we cover with grass so it doesn't stink as bad. 
Yeah, not quite like sweeping under the rug. You're right. Yeah, I don't know what euphemism we have in, in English for covering with grass. Polishing a turd, but that's not That's not quite it. It's that idea of like, uh, anyways. Um, it seems like in one through six mm -hmm. that there was, it, if I'm recalling correctly and understood correctly, one person did something wrong. Whereas with seven, there's kind of an acknowledgement is that when one person does something wrong, like other people, like people tend to misbehave in groups, you know, like, mm. you know, like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, well, that, that, you know, so when yep. you get upset, then you misbehave. So if someone does something to you that upsets you, you yeah. So that seems like is what happening in seven. Is it true the others? Yes. Seven. One person did something wrong and no one else did. Yes. Yeah. Seven seems to be referring because of the, there, there's a couple footnotes here too about that whole covering grass, that it's about things we did during the litigation process, uh, not prior to it, or that would be a, uh, a, that would be an offense in a litigation. It's about like once we're in the middle of all of this, we might have said some things we didn't mean. We might have done some things we didn't really mean to do. Let's try to just forget about that type of a thing, right? Okay, some of these seem really loophole-y to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, no, seriously, it's I'm curious. Okay, so um, insanity, like some of them, like insanity or bad character or what happens what happens once to that person insanity sounds like they're let off the hook or not mm -hmm. like, is, is it is there anything that's so grave that it's like yeah it doesn't matter you were insane or whatever you... the four the four the main four and it says that in there like like you can sweep under the grass all this other stuff but you could not sweep under the grass or cover with grass the four major offenses okay and there is an understanding that anybody that confesses to those four is gone okay. yeah okay yeah yep and like eating twice in a day like okay then you go through this process right so monks are only supposed to eat one meal a day so, so it's an offense to be two right one make self-confess that or I could be like, I saw Brendan eating after lunch. I accuse you, right? So that's a dispute, accusation. I accuse you. And so we could meet face-to-face -face and work it out. And I could, we'd lay out the Vinaya, and I'd be like, right here, he says, only eat one meal a day before noon. And then... I could say I was sleep eating or whatever. And then... <laughs> and, then and then obviously... That would be insanity. Then, yeah, that, actually, you would say insanity. And then that would be like, okay, you were insane. And if it happened a second time, then obviously, like, now you're full of shit. Well, yeah, and I think... So, like, I mean, that's an understanding, right? Like, serial offenders of eating night feed. <laughs> that, that speaks to the idea of the good memory, this idea that the monk has a good reputation. If you, if you had a reputation for kind of lying or whatever, <laughs> yeah. or just always breaking the rules, then you would have a bad memory, in the sense the memory of you would be bad, and so we, you might... Yeah. yeah, the other monk's night. I do want to say something really quickly, though, about this. Pl please understand that, you know, we're, we're using these terms litigation and settlement, and this is litigation and settlement. And in fact, many legal scholars recognize the Vinaya as like the oldest, one of the oldest like legal documents in terms of legality, um, in terms of litigation and settlements. And so the, the words are appropriately chosen in that regard. But I want to make very clear what's going on here. This is not 
um, a uh, Occidental uh, Western court system where where the the accusation like I'm like Brendan ate afternoon he ate two meals Brendan didn't do anything to me he didn't do anything to me he did something to himself and potentially to the Sangha why I'm bringing this up is that what that means is that if he gets off the hook this doesn't have anything to do with me he didn't offend me do you know what I mean? If we're in a different situation where he stole my whatever and then the Sangha decided to let him off the hook and it's like, no, but what about my thing? What about me? That's a serious issue and, and law's tricky because of those relationships. I just want it to be very clear though that in this scenario, the accusations are not happening that way. And so what's at stake in this is karma. Meaning that you've got your karma to deal with. If you lie about it, oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Right? You're going you're gonna to lie too? Oh, my God. Do you know what I mean? Like the idea, so the idea of, of uh, like the idea of, let's say, perjury of you lying. That's a, a big problem for you, not our court operating. It's like, wow, you're going to bear, you're going to double down on this? Do you see what I mean? So there's a way in which a lot of this is based on karma being real, meaning that we suffer the results of our actions. And this is the system to try to help with all of that. And so loopholes, like the idea of loopholes, maybe in a Western Occidental there are loopholes. There's no loopholes in karma, though, if that makes sense. Yeah. In the seven settlements, it seems like there should be an eighth one because let's say you're starting to not feel well and you're needing... But there is a rule that says if it's for medical... That's part of the... There's the medicine meal. Medicine Medicine meal for elderly or sick or just if you need it. And so I I accuse you. You ate afternoon. We draw up the dharma and I say, look, right there. And then you say, no, but right here, he says, a medicine meal and I wasn't feeling well. Sounds good to me. You're right. But if I was like, no, 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 then we would bring it to a larger group. And maybe the larger group would be like, no, no. That's why the Buddha said there were medicine meals. Brendan's in the clear. So boom, your karma's good. All of that, right? Yes. Um, so the next Buddha, um, according to Buddha, is Maitreya, right? And uh, at one point, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, and that's why I think the Sangha is uh, interesting, that the next Buddha is not the individual, but the Sangha, right? Yep. Um, are there any texts that refers to what Tishnatan said at one point? Not that I know of. In fact, all of the texts speak of Maitreya as riding a giant white horse with a giant sword that is here to fight the armies of evil <laughs> and is very much an individual savior figure in that regard. Yeah, I love the Tishnatan sentiment, and I think there's ways that you could get to that but the actual explicit like Maitreya will be a community or Maitreya will be a Sangha I have not found that reference outside of that okay so then Ananda so that's after the covering of grass Ananda there are these six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conducive to and are conducive to cohesion to non-dispute 
to concord and to unity. What are the six? Here, a bhikkhu maintains bodily acts of metta, loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the holy life. This is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and, conduce, and conduces to cohesion, to non-dispute, to concord, and to unity. Excuse me. Again, a bhikkhu maintains verbal acts of metta, or loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the holy life. This, too, is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and, and is conducive to cohesion, non-dispute, concord, and unity. Again, a bhikkhu maintains mental acts of metta or loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the holy life. This, too, is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and is conducive to unity. Again, a bhikkhu enjoys things in common with his virtuous companions in the holy life. Without making reservations, he shares with them any gain of a kind that accords with the Dharma and has been obtained in a way that accords with the Dharma, including even what is in his own begging bowl. This, too, is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and conduces to unity. Again, a bhikkhu dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his companions in the holy life those virtues that are unbroken, untorn, unblotched, unmottled, liberating, commended by the wise, not misapprehended, and conducive to concentration. This, too, is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and con conduces to unity. Again, a bhikkhu dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his companions in the holy life that view that is noble and emancipating, and leads the one who practices it in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. This too is a principle of cordiality that creates love and respect and conduces to cohesion, to non-dispute, to concord, and to unity. These are the six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to cohesion, to non-dispute, to concord, and to unity. If, Ananda, you undertake and maintain these six principles of cordiality, do you see any course of speech, trivial or gross, that you could not endure? No, venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, undertake and maintain these six principles of cordiality that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. That is what the Blessed One said. The venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. There you have it. Questions? Answers? I love the uh, like they were de the, the defeats. Like mm. They were defeated by like they're in the third person. It's, it's sort of speaking to viewing themselves like that idea. Yeah. The part about the four things that you can't do the killing part for the bhikkhus is that killing of animals as well for food. Is that a killing, or they mean human killing? Because they're vegetarian at this point, too, right? So no. So here's the thing. So in the original Pali, in the orange, the Pali canon, including the Pali Vinaya, mm -hmm. the rule was um, there are rules against ahimsa, against doing violence, but there is a, another rule that whatever is 
put in your bowl, you, have, you eat. Yes. Doesn't matter what it is. The rule, though, is, is that if somebody killed the animal for you, you can't eat it. Like, like oh, the monk's coming. Quick, get a chicken. No. If it's like we had chicken last, last night and there's chicken left over and we put it in your bowl, it would be an offense actually to not eat it in the, in the Theravada, in the traditional, like old school way. The bodhisattva vows make it uh, the vegetarianism requirement. So it's only in Mahayana Buddhism that there is a requirement for vegetarianism. This actually has a lot to do with this, uh, what, what I call the Qingui, the pure standards. It would be in one of these that it says in this monastery, it's okay to eat goat because we don't have anything else to eat. Like we decided that that was okay. So a monk killing a goat. No, 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 no. Never, Is ever, that ever. One of the four? That would be number, that would be one of the four. Okay. Yeah. So Kill. it does include animals in a sense. I'm just it, it, it does. It gets tricky because Mahavira, the founder of the Jain tradition, yes. he said definitely don't kill anything to the point where Jains are known for walking with the, a little broom and they walk like this with a little broom <laughs> making sure they don't step on anything. They took the, the rule against not killing that far. Buddhists don't so much. However, one of the seven things that a monk or a nun can own like as property is a water strainer the main reason being so that they don't ingest any little critters. So there's a, a, there's a line that the, even the Theravadans are trying to walk about destruction of life, but it, they don't go so far as the Jains where they wear little masks to make sure not to even breathe in the microbials and kill them and all that. So, and then again, Mahayana takes it all the way to where it's like, no, no, no meat, period. And practically veganism, practically in that way. Does intention play a role in this, like accidental killing? So, it doesn't. Traditionally, it doesn't. It is very much about the act. Intention is, intention is taken into consideration, I think, as far as the, quote, punishment. But as far as what you did, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that, yeah, yeah. But again... These, what makes a one Buddhist community different than another one, different than another one, is primarily the Vinaya in that way and how they read it and all of that. So I don't want to make these big blanket statements. I just, so just so you know, my, my master's thesis was on these Qinghui, on these pure standards in China. And so what I did was, is I basically studied the Vinaya. I studied what monks were supposed to do. And then I studied these Qinghui and saw like what they were doing, like the adaptations <clears throat> that they were making, because I was interested in those cultural changes where the Chinese were like, well, we're going to be Buddhist, but we're going to be Buddhist our way. And I was interested in that cultural adaptation of like, what does it mean to do Buddhism our way? So I studied those things. And so I can tell you pretty safely that the act is what it is. Even to that point, if like you accidentally murdered somebody, it's like, you know, and yeah, karma, you know, the reason why they're focused on bodily acts of meta, vocal and mental acts of karma is because karma comes from the body, the mouth and the mind. Intention is the mind. The body is the act. If I accidentally killed somebody with my body, 
sorry, I got to pay for that. But that my mental karma wasn't like, die, mother. Like, my, so I'm not karmically as in debt as I would be. Do you see what I mean? Like, we're weighing all of this. But you also don't get away with being mindless and having an accident. It's like, sorry, buddy, there's nobody else that caused the murder but you. Kind of a thing. Yes. I think it's interesting because in Christianity you have the Ten Commandments, right? You have in Hinduism you have the Niyamas, Niyamas, yeah. It's in Islam, I don't know. I'm not familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, like, besides the karmic aspect of it, like, why, you know, Buddha even taught these, these rules? Because like, did you think, like, we're so conditioned, or what is really the root cause of having rules? So, uh, great question, and again, what I love about the Vinaya is that seemingly in the beginning, there were no rules, and then something happened. The every, All 220, 227, 300, all, every single rule came about because a situation happened, and it caused a problem. And the monks went to the Buddha and they were like, yo, what's going on? So, for example, um, in the very, very, very beginning of the Sangha, they were naked. The renunciation went all the way to where you renounced everything. Then what happened was is that there was a monk who was, oh, there's a, a funny story, but basically like, uh, he was like covered in dirt or something and the woman who he was begging from had bad eyesight and basically got freaked out at the sight of him and, you know, I don't know, had a heart attack or something, but something happened. And the monks went back and reported it and the, and the, and the Buddha said, all right, no more nudity. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the graveyard. We're going to get rags off of corpses. We're going to take them back. We'll shred them up. Stitch them together, dye them saffron. How's that sound? Okay. And that, now that's the rule, that you can't be naked. But you can't be naked because that one guy freaked the lady out. It freaks people out. Every single rule came from something that caused a problem. None of them were just like, Buddha came down from the mountaintop with the tablets and was like, <laughs> thou shall not. And none of it. It's, it's actually kind of interesting that every single rule is... Because of something that happened. And, and again, you can go back and read about it. And what's great about that is you can go back and read about it and you can be like, but in our situation here in the 21st century, something, it might be different. There's like a logic given to the rule that could be changed. Yep. And again, the Buddha said you could dis- disregard the minor rules. Yeah, no. So, so the, the, the guy who started, the guy who died, that was mentioned in the first part of the story. Yeah, Mahavira. Yes. He had a following of people, and they had a way of being. They were searching for. They had their dharma. They had their dharma, and they figured that by whether through aesthetic, being aesthetic, they would find liberation. When we talked about the Brahman, we talked about the yogis. Before the Buddha came, he studied all of these things. So there was a tradition of thousands of years of denial or of excess, and in this. So in this, it's not, so it existed before, so he's just, got to, in my mind, you know, he's trying to qualify for the Sangha, because it's already there. 
there's a pre-existing uh, idea of liberation, and he says, no, there's a middle path. Mm -hmm. And so this is the, the sorting out of all of that. It's what, yeah, what the middle path looks like. Right. But, of course, in Buddhism, the middle path is always moving. Yeah. It's not fixed. And so 2,500 years ago, the Vinaya shows you what the middle path kind of looked like for that culture then. And again, that's very valuable to, to know. Oh, this is why they came to all these rules. This was the middle path then. Example, eating one meal a day before noon. Not fasting, but in not all you can eat. <laughs> right? Like right in between those, kind of an idea. Um, I got a general question. So, in taking some refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, um, is there's this understanding of taking refuge in Sangha as the enlightened and liberated being, so to speak, but also in the actual Sangha? Right? Oh, it's usually this. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I have a hard time taking refuge in, you know, in the Sangha. Uh, yeah, I think, so I didn't mention that, thank you, that idea that in Buddhism there's the idea of you take, take refuge, seek shelter. I always have loved Buddhism for the idea of seeking shelter. Has the storm gotten too much for you? Seek shelter. You good? Fine. But we're, we're here for you. Not uh, uh, snip this part of your anatomy off to prove you're a member of the club. Not <laughs> confess all your sins and take a life, you know. No, no, no. Got too much for you? Take refuge. So the idea of refuge is so interesting in Buddhism. Shelter. And then the, the three shelters, so to speak, the three refuges are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The awakened one, what he taught, the awakening, and then, yeah, this idea of the community, and traditionally the Sangha is the community, not the Buddhas. The Buddhas are the Buddhas. Even the past Buddhas would be here. The Sangha is the living community. You may have noticed in this sutra I just read, though, the Sangha was the recluses, those leading the holy life. The Sangha for the Pali, for the Theravada tradition, the Sangha was just the monks and the nuns. The laity were the laity. <laughs> And then the, the Sangha was the monastics. And so there was a laity that supported the Sangha. The Sangha, they're the real deal. They've got shaved heads, they're meditating, they're celibate. We'll support them. In the Mahayana tradition, the Sangha is the whole group. The whole group. And the idea of taking refuge is the idea that we, basically we can't do it alone. And there's even kind of an idea that we shouldn't in that way. Not, you know, shouldn't's probably a little hard, but there's this beautiful idea, especially in Mahayana Buddhism of the Kalyana Mitra, the spiritual friends. And the, the Mahayana Sutras talk at length about the importance of spiritual friends to, to move this all along, that we need a, a community like that. Yep. Um. The, starting from the four litigations over, mm -hmm. you're getting into sort of resolving the issue, right? That's the type of issue, that's the way it can be settled, and those are, and well, the last one's more preventive, right? If you do that, you're not going to have issues as much, mm -hmm. but do they get, is, I mean, all there is is that sutra, so I don't know if you know this answer, but it doesn't seem like in the settlement there's a getting back to the roots of the dispute. In other words, you know, 
uh, Brendan admits he ate a second meal, Sorry about whether that. it's because he's insane or, you know, that's whatever. Yep. We don't go back to say, gosh, why did he do that? Was he, was it fraud and deceit? Was it ill? And so it's um, on him to work on those Yep. For, uh, on himself, it's not something that Sangha is doing communally. That's really my question. Oh, yeah, yeah. The confession is it. This is real, uh, uh, what would you call it? Truth and reconciliation, I think is what we call it now. This is the whole legal system. This legal system is based on truth and reconciliation, wow. not uh, 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 punishment. Or, or uh, not even punishment. I'm thinking of, uh, what's the other test? Yeah, restorative justice. No, mm. not restorative justice, but like, oh gosh, you know, well, let's help Brendan not do this in the future by addressing. The uh, I think there's a tacit it. understanding that that's just what we're in the business of doing as bhikkhus. Got it. Right? Because yeah. that list kind of lead, reads like a lot of, you know, the, um, what do they call the, the hindrances. Sure, sure. No, it's, sure. It's not, it's, it's but they're. I went looking at all the poly, you know, they're unique words, unique ideas. Yeah, yeah, like the idea of being envious, like is truly what, you know, what you think it is. You're being jealous a little bit, envious of people. And if this is where it pops up in Buddhism. So you know. is this the only place that word No, I wouldn't say that. It's just one of the only places I've seen these ideas okay. is in this idea of the, the social cohesion. Okay. You know, I've, I've made I, this statement a lot that for the most part, yeah. Theravada is very self-oriented and even the rules are about you know the rule for i mean there of course are rules against uh like uh, sexual violence and things like that but notice that they're very concerned about your dealing with your own semen that that's a grave offense if you know what i mean and so that the the focus is very much on the individual this suture is unique for talking about the community but note it's only talking about the the bhikkhus Right, and it gets a little tricky in terms of being any kind of um, precedent for. It, it, this is tricky as a precedent for any kind of legal system writ large, yeah. because the whole system is predicated on the idea of banishment, meaning that if you break one of the four, see ya, you're somebody else's problem. Right. And what, where, where you go from there, we, we're over here worrying about us. So, and not that all legal systems are not insider, outsider like that. And in fact, if you read a lot of legal philosophy, kind of understand that the ban is the, actually the original legal act is the ban, either the banning of a substance via taboo that a ruler puts a taboo on says something and says, this is, this is banned. You, uh, this fruit, we don't eat this pork. Banned. So the ban or the banishment, you're out. You're out of the club. See ya. You are persona non grata anymore. You're, you're gone. That was the original legal act, kicking somebody out of the group. Banishment. That was it. That was like the, the, the beginning of law was the ban of a substance or a thing and then the banishment getting somebody out. And that's tricky because, again, it's great for us that we got that guy out, but what about the rest of the world that has to deal with that guy, right? 
So that's where, you know, this is an interesting model for an organization to use. I think it's totally applicable, like I said, in terms of thinking of uh, the mission statement as the drawing up the Dharma and then doing, coming to it a, an agreement that's in accord with the mission statement and all of that. I think this is all really practical and applicable, um, but it raises a lot of interesting questions about, uh, again, the person that gets kicked out. Well, what about them? Do we, do we, we don't care about that person anymore? The Mahayana tradition cares about that person. The Mahayana tradition, the Mahayana Buddhist tradition is all about saving all sentient beings. So there is no banishment in that world per se, but it's true. Yes? Um, how does this change, or does it change very much when it shifts to the laity, or the, like you're talking about the Mahayana tradition, mm -hmm. like where, what happens then? Is it, is it still the same outline, or the offenses still the same offenses? Nope. So there is uh, a few different versions of lay vows. I think it's there's a five version, an eight yeah. version, and a ten version. Ten vows for laity, or eight or five, uh, depending. And that's pretty much it. And there is not, to my knowledge, the same type of communal confession for laity. I do know of some Buddhist groups that use the monastic model for laity, but for the most part, in Mahayana communities, like I said, they follow the Vinaya, and they do on the new and full moons, they shave their head. Uh, in all the monasteries I've lived at, in all the monasteries I've lived at, on the new and full moons, there's a ritual in the evening, there is a ritual recitation of the Pratimoksha, the rules, but they do not confess. It, there's no room for it. I was waiting. The first time I went to one of these, I was like, oh my God, is like somebody going to confess? Like, what's going to happen? And it was so ritualized and they just file in, chant and file out. And I was like, where was the... And then I was told, no, no, we don't, we don't do that. In fact, there's actual legal channels in the monastery and a lot of this has more or less been abandoned for, uh, I, I think for systems that conform with modern legal systems in that sense. Well, it seems like they could hold on to some of this seems quite useful. I mean, the sense the first column and the last column. And mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so do they banish people? They Maybe. do. I knew a monk that got banished for... But he was a monk. Gallivanting around. Ooh. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, I knew, yeah, he, he got, he got kicked out because he, he impregnated a lady. He was... He was sneaking out of the monastery. <laughs> he was sneaking out of the monastery, and then he got a lady, his girlfriend. I mean, it wasn't like that, but he was kind of secretly dating this woman, got her pregnant, and they were like, well, you can't be a monk, dude. <laughs> and so he got kicked out. But obviously, he kind of didn't want to be a monk. I mean, in that sense. So, um, a, a point about the six principles of cordiality, um, they do seem to be like ad advice, but... Though I wanted to point out just linguistically, they kept saying in terms of the uh, settlements, whether it's face-to-face -face or all of that, that the, the bhikkhus of the group should meet in concord and work this out. There's a, and this is cordiality, and this has a lot to do with that concordance, that whole idea. And so there's part of me that wants to think that this 
that these six principles of cordiality, they're sort of like when we're trying to settle this out. Not to say that you shouldn't always have this. Obviously, you should always have this. But in terms of why it comes here, and because of the language involved, I think they're referring to how you conduct yourself while you're doing this. That while we're meeting face-to-face, we should act with meta, speak with meta, think with meta. We should remember that all of this is ours in common, that we all have common views and all have common virtues. Or, yeah, right? Again, not to say that you shouldn't always be doing that, but it does seem to be that it's kind of saying that in the process of all of this, those are ways of being cordial. Again, just because they keep talking about monks coming together and being cordial and working all of this out. And then he gives these seven principles of cordiality. So, What does he say to them at the end, though? In terms of... Uh, yeah. No, he just says that if, if you if no, no, if you undertake and maintain these six principles of cordiality, do you see any course of speech, trivial or gross, that you could not endure? He says, no. Sure, therefore, and undertake and maintain these six principles of cordiality that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. So yeah, again, they're, they're applicable, obviously, all the time in, in terms of being a member of the Sangha, but I just feel like there's a little allusion to the they're, it's really important that when we're working this stuff out. Again, because the way the sutra is structured is kind of like, if you don't want to get into this, watch this stuff. If some of this gets out of hand, it's going to result in this, which you settle like that. And then keep all that in mind when you're doing it. Kind of an idea. Fred? Yeah, I don't even know this question. I was at a, a lecture on restorative justice, and one of the, one of the principles that this uh, lecture mentioned was he used an example in traditional Japanese culture where the integration of shared values is such that if a person introduces two people and those two people later have a conflict, the person who introduced them is responsible for mediating. And it was an example in the context of generalizing about systems of justice which are generated by cultures which believe that humans are inherently flawed and cannot control their impulses and therefore constraints and rules and laws get generated in those cultures that's different from where one a culture that has confidence that there is a spiritual tradition and everybody's on an evolutionary track and therefore there's a much more uh, culturally enforced informal system of justice. I don't know whether that's even a question but if you've got examples if you've got any examples of something to the western mind which would be wow that's that's a way of of not enforce, informing or enforcing behavior as much as having a collective value of moving forward together mm-hmm. that, yeah i mean that's an interesting idea and the the only thing that comes to mind is when i was responding to this idea of like that this is a karma based system mm-hmm. and this idea of like Yeah, I think it's that interesting place. And not to say the loophole comment was coming from this, but the interesting place of like the mind that would like read this and try to find the loophole. Like try to find, not the loophole, but try to find like, oh, but what if they were lying? And kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Like there's a Western mind that wants to find the complication in that way. But is, is, 
coming from a place of ego-centered, non-karma retribution, game the system kind of a thing, if you know what I mean. Like versus one that takes karma seriously and that's the foundation, that's the starting point. And from there, it's like, oh, wow, this is all very helpful. Like, if that makes sense. And what is the shared agreement in the culture about human nature? What is it that we are? Yeah, and it's a very interesting idea of like, you know, this is a group of people who have renounced everything, everything, and they are, you know, communism doesn't even be, start to begin to define this social structure, right? And so, and that, you know, they're, it's just, it's a society unlike any other society in that regard, in terms of, you know, our society, like, like you were saying, in terms of different justice systems and, justice systems and one that says, well, let's just assume everybody's a piece of shit <laughs> and, and go from there versus one that's kind of like, no, we're all striving for enlightenment. And what's the most you know, conducive way to do that? There's a great book by um, a French philosopher, modern French philosopher named uh, Badu, Alain Badu. He has a great book called Ethics. And in this book, Ethics, he quickly outlines um, this... He's, he's, it's a really little book, but he's talking about this word ethics and ethical and something being ethical and the use of the term ethical, the way the Greeks used it and this transition to the way that we use it now of what it means to be ethical today versus what it meant to be ethical for the Greeks, for Plato and Aristotle. And what he lays out is that our conception of ethical is that there's like this baseline good, right? That we're all kind of trying to be at a baseline good. And if you mess up, ah, oh, you, slipped, you slipped below good. You, you, gotta, you gotta do something about that. You gotta get back up to good because we're all at good. And if you do something bad, you slip below good. And that's unethical. Ethical is what we're all doing at the good level. Right? That's the modern Western view of ethics. Baseline good, bad, you slip below it. Come on, buddy, get up, right? The Greeks, that was not the way, and this is what he writes his book about. For the Greeks, ethical was that we're all at this baseline of mediocrity, and ethical is something that lifts one or all of us higher than that. Education, uh, liberal arts, these things that bring us up, that's ethical. If we're, if somebody, God forbid, oh shit, slipped below, oh my God, what's their problem? <laughs> like, they're, okay, well, we gotta talk about that and we'll deal with that. But that's something else. Ethical, ethical is actually about trying to raise it, the bar for everybody to like, to the point where we're all Olympian gods. Like, that's the Greek view of it, that there's improvement to be done here, and we're all at a mediocre level, but that we have this potential for greatness, versus this whack version we have now, where it's just either normal or bad, but there's no actual better place to go. And did he explain why we came? The, his book is sort of about that process of a de- devolution, de- devolving 
out of that mindset into our modern one. It's a great little book. It's a little heavy in terms of ethical philosophy, but it's amazing because I didn't know that about the Greeks. And when I went back, I was like, wow, that's a worldview about right and wrong, that something is right if it elevates society. Huh, right? Mm. Is ethics is more behavioral, moral, morality is about beliefs, values, and, and doesn't necessarily include, but it dictates behavior. Yep. Is, even if that's wrong, what's the difference in terms of Eastern views of that same subject? What is the relationship between morality and, and ethics? Mm. Well, it's a big, big question. We're very far afield at this point in terms of what I should be talking about. <laughs> but I will just bring it back to this idea of the karma-based system. In that sense that the, the, the Greeks didn't believe in karma in that way. They believed in potential, human potential and things like that. Um, but the ethical system of at least Buddhism is based on this idea of karma. And we already started dabbling with this idea of intention versus action. And then, no, there's three sources of karma. Everything you say, everything you think, and everything you do. And those three are the, the, the place of ethics or the place of morality in that sense. Right? What you say, what you do, and what you think. No? Well, exactly. And, you know, that couldn't... I've said this a few times before about the difference between, say, a theocentric, i.e. Judeo-Christian worldview, where time is linear and teleological. Teleological meaning there's an end to it, a beginning and an end, and a clock that's ticking. That's the Western Judeo-Christian view of time, that... There's a, it's a line, and it ends, and the clock's ticking, so we better get moving. The reincarnation view of, in just in general, Eastern philosophy of, no, we're going round and round and round. We've been here a zillion times before, and we're going to be here a zillion times more. There's no clock ticking in that. There's this you know, pernicious cycle <laughs> Happening, where we're just like stuck in a dryer going around and around and it's annoying and it would be nice to get out of the cycle but there's a that you know it's it, re, it results actually in pros, proselytizing that the reason why christians are out there proselytizing is because the clock is ticking their their view is the clock is ticking and you know if that's the view that's the view and i mean i always say god bless them for being out there like if they really think that God bless him for being out there trying to get me on board. Really, you know. But if the clock's not ticking and you're just going around and around, Buddhism in particular has a very gentle hand when it comes to proselytizing. In fact, they don't really do it. The idea being that it actually, the smarter groups of Buddhists, the idea is, is that it actually would turn you off. And it's more expedient for us to just kick back and wait for you to be attracted to it. And that's the importance of symbols and all of that with the idea that these symbols might stir something in somebody and then they'll wander in. But that's the idea is like, you know, there's this saying that, you know, the, the, 
the teacher appears when the student is ready kind of a thing. That's kind of an Eastern idea. But it is kind of true, that idea that in the, in the Eastern view that it's karma and reincarnation-based, it's really like whether you're ready or not. And even the Theravadans say that about monasticism. Like, do you desire, have you ever had the desire to burn all your belongings? Have you ever realized that they're really weighing you down? Then you might have been a monk in your past life or you might have monastic inclinations. If, if you've seen how stuff is like problematic and you've even had the inclination or the desire to like let go of it all, that's called renunciation. If that's not you, then that's not you this time around. You're here to do something else. You're not here to be a monk or a nun. Like, uh, at least Buddhism, for, as far as karma goes, they're really into that idea of, like, not pushing anybody into monasticism because the idea that if... You, the idea, of course, is that we will all renounce someday. The idea of Buddhism is that we will all grow tired of this childish video game eventually and we'll put the controller down and, and we'll be done. We'll renounce. But again... Most of us, myself included, are a little enthralled still by it, and we love it. And so, I'm, well, I'm not going to renounce in that way. And there's a sort of like, a, again, an idea in Buddhism, like that I'm not ready. Yeah. Um, I was listening to an Ajahn Brahm talk where the issue of like two meals a day actually came up with a novice monk who came to him to confess that he had eaten two meals a day, and it was, um, yeah, he said. But, so Ajahn Brahm gave him some, some tips for how to deal with hunger after the meal. It was like you can have some chocolate after, you know, with the tea in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And the, the novice monk was actually sort of upset that there was no punishment. <laughs> so he <laughs> was like, are you going to do something to me? He's like, no, you know, like, you know, try to do it better next time. But, that's a great, yeah, really that's a great story. That's yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. They're not interested in punishment. Yeah. They're actually interested in improvement, karma, and betterment. It's really kind of a breath of fresh air when you really look at it, where it's like, wow, no, not punishment. And actually, the time out where they send you to the, your little shack is just that, a time out. Like, yo, cool off, we'll cool off, think about what you did kind of a thing. It's not a punishment so much as it's uh, just, you know, restores cohesion in that sense. But it is interesting for a, a, if you're Western-minded where you might even want punishment. That like the, the situation will not be resolved until there's punishment, kind of an idea, right? So this all seems really oriented towards keeping the group together. Like, okay, here's how it's going up, and here's how we kind of come back down. Yep. And it, it was just interesting to me that it's coming about after the death of a founder, because like, didn't Buddhism split into sects like pretty soon after the Buddha passed away? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was over the minor rules. <laughs> the, yeah, 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 yeah. Second generation, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, um, it seems to be inevitable, kind of, sort of, and it's interesting that the Buddha was like, well, here's the be- the be- your best shot is to keep all of this. Um, but also the Buddha gave um, 84,000 different teachings in order because he knew people are different, right? Mm-hmm. That's the idea. Yep. Any comments about the view of cynicism and or guilt and shame as drivers of community behavior? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, I don't see any 
guilt or shame in this system, and it was out of context for you know the person to want to come forward and want some punishment and ah. be disappointed by it. And hmm. I don't know what that says. Yeah, you know, I mean, that plays out in Asian cultures big time as far as, I mean, there's been whole books written on the role of shame in Eastern culture. I mean, it's kind of wild. And so in Buddhism, I don't see it. In the Dharma and the Vinaya and all of that, I don't see it. But in the actual, like the monasteries in East Asia that I've lived in, there's a lot of guilt and shame going on. Yeah, but it's... You know, that's the anthropologist to me can kind of see where it's traditional Chinese culture, infiltrating Buddhism, it, you know, and all of that. But that gets tricky. So, yeah. But it's an interesting idea, though, about the, the role of those things. Um, as soon as you said that, yeah, my mind started wondering. I was like, yeah, I don't really see an equivalent to that in Buddhism. In the West, one of the conversations always is guilt or shame either internal And what does the culture tell us about where that's supposed to reside, where that responsibility is? Am I supposed to be told by a community that I am guilty or I am supposed to feel shame? And where is the locus of those two as, as, a, as a cultural understanding? Yeah, I mean, that's the other very, uh, one other very interesting thing about this whole system in regards to it not being um, uh, punishment and guilt-based and all of that. I mean, this, the, the self-confessed offense is like the primary mode of all of this. Most, the whole idea of another monk accusing another monk is kind of like, mm, you know, maybe that happens or whatever, but the idea of self-confessing is the main version of this. Again, it's a system of, of truth and reconciliation where twice a month we get together and if anybody has, has broken one of the 220 vows, let us know. And the idea is, is like, you let us know, that's it. There, yeah, there might be the, you have to go in your shack for a little while. But the idea is, is that the confessing of it is it. Like, that's the system. That keeping it inside or keeping it hidden, that's worse. Oh, no, like, don't do that. Yep. They don't kill spiders in the monastery. Are right. you you're telling me this? I don't know. I'm asking. Do they not kill spiders? Um. I, I okay. So my, my and I, I don't want yeah, a yeah. long answer. Actually. No, no. My experience my experience of, of of monastic life is their catch and release. Perfect. <laughs> As, That's how I am. That's yeah. That's many important. my household as well were catch and release on bugs and all of that. And I did see a monk. Uh, he had become a friend of mine. I saw him administer the three refuges to a dead grasshopper. That's cute. <laughs> I'm just saying, so that's where they're at. Okay. So he came across a dead grasshopper and immediately got down and started doing In the... In all seriousness. Absolute, yeah. absolute seriousness. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. Okay. But at least that... Sorry. No, I just... That was just a side... Stubbornness and unwillingness, like, yeah. is it, is there any more about that? That seems to be, like, So, a, I a, a summarized it. One. So, I kind of summarized it to stubbornness and unwillingness, but it was particularly this idea of, what was it that you have, but it was about this idea of having your own view 
and stu- and giving it up stu- like re- re- uh, reluctantly giving up your own view. So imagine that you're on a committee and imagine everybody is in agreement except for one person who is has their own view and is stubbornly sticking to it and is not going to give up that that view. The Buddha is saying that that is definitely the root of a, of a dispute. You've got a dispute coming. Yeah. <laughs> right? Do you? Obviously you do. And so he says, in yourself and in others. Check it. Right? He says that. Check, this, check that these roots don't arise in yourself yeah. and in others. And so again, like anger and resentment. <laughs> obviously, right? All of these. Yeah, you know what this is. Don't do it. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, yeah. Or not even that. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, somebody had brought up the relationship between these and like the five hindrances. I mean, this is general Buddhism in a way. It's just some very specific ideas that pertain to group dynamics, right? Or being envious of somebody else, deceiving somebody else, right? So it's kind of interesting that way. Yep. The monk that gave refuge to the, that grasshopper. Yeah. Is the assumption there that that grasshopper's karma could be influenced by the by the giving of refuge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh what, yeah. What is the purpose of giving refuge to? So the grasshopper has a better rebirth. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the general idea in Mahayana East Asian Buddhism is that any being that dies, you have this little window of up to 49 days, but you have this window where the, the consciousness of some sort is disembodied and is traversing the bardo, which is a gauntlet of options. And the idea is, is that little grasshopper is going to be scared and might make the bad decision. But if he hears the monk going like chanting, he'll float in that direction, so to speak, and lead to a better rebirth. That's the idea, at least as far as I understand it. What were some of the major differences between the Vinaya and the um, monastic rules of the... Um, things like hats. <laughs> <laughs> things like so extra robes because okay. it's cold. You got to remember Buddhism, he was like three little sheets <laughs> to cover yourself. That might work well in the subtropical <laughs> zones of, of southern India, but in northern Tibet or wherever it gets cold. And so the chingue, the monastic standards, would be like, it's okay to wear an extra garment. It's okay to wear a hat. Um, things like that. Yeah, so they're kind of like addendums to the Vinaya. Where they actually, what's interesting about them is that, uh, ostensibly, the, all monks in China or whatever, they claim that they follow all the Vinaya. Even though, like... I. I, go th- I went through all these rules, and I was like, there's no way they're not doing this, 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 this. They're breaking these rules, but in their mind, they follow all the Vinaya and all of the Bodhisattva vows and all of the pure standards of a monastery, even though they might contradict. <laughs> Is it because they're writing them off as minor? Um, no, it's more that a lot of the Vinaya... So, for example, just to give you one more... Uh, one rule uh, that, uh, for monks and nuns is that they cannot touch gold or silver. Some monastic organizations 
take that to mean that you literally can't touch gold or silver. But you can have a credit card and you can have $100 bills coming out of your pockets, but no gold or silver. Some Buddhist groups, though, most of them actually, know or believe they know what the Buddha meant by don't touch gold and silver. And so in those monastic organizations, they don't touch money because they understood what the Buddha meant by gold and silver, i.e. mediums of exchange. You're not supposed to be owning anything anyways. So, but that's a rule. No touching gold or silver. It gets interpreted to mean different things. Literally just don't touch gold or silver and literally just don't touch it. Or like don't use medium of exchange and all of that. What I was getting at though is that a lot of times what happens is is that these Vinaya rules become kind of symbolic in that way. So it's like the rule against touching gold or silver, it's kind of like, you know, I won't wear any uh, jewelry made of gold or silver. And that'll, that'll take care of that rule, if you know what I mean. And it's like, well, is that really what he meant, not to wear gold or silver? Because if you read the story, it's about a monk who was off trying to buy something, and the Buddha said, no, 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 we're not doing that. So, I mean, what I really just want to say, though, is that all of these rules are open to interpretation based on each community and ultimately based on the founder of that community and how literally and hardcore they interpreted their Vinaya or not. Yeah. And on that note, wow. call it a night. We did another sutta. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.